I'm Steve Vibronix, and this is the Life in Dub podcast, talking to people who live their lives in dub and reggae. Episode number 21. Welcome to the 21st episode of the Life in Dub podcast. How are you doing out there? I hope all is well. As usual, I have to say a big thanks to all the messages of support for Life in Dub. It's always nice to hear that the podcast is well-loved and being listened to all over the world. You can drop me a line at vibronics at gmail.com if you have any suggestions, comments, or just want to lend your support to Life in Dub. Thanks for all the sharing. These social media shares really help spread the podcast stories far and wide. So cheers for supporting and sharing. This week, I want to talk about dances, or more accurately, dancing. Those that have met me will know that I'm not exactly a skanking legend. I've always been more of a lurker in the background. But I've always loved to see people let loose at sound system sessions. The old word for a session is a dance, because that's really what they're all about. Whether you're quietly doing your own thing like me, or if you're doing the fling-foot King David step like an acrobat, Roots Reggae music is music to move to. Over the years, I've seen people totally new to sound system just get taken by the bass, the music, the vibe, and let loose for the first time. I've also watched the seasoned skankers and steppers perfecting their styles after years of practice. Sometimes surprisingly later into life, it's like it keeps some people young. Dancing is one of the things that make a dance such an experience, and as a music producer, it's something that's always in my mind, because I'm happy that the music I make is dance music, music for the sound system dance. It's a worldwide thing, no matter which continent. With the right music served up on the right sound system, people have no choice but to move to it. Now, in these restricted times we're currently living through, I wonder what the hardcore skankers are up to. I hope you're keeping fit and keeping those moves in practice, which is not easy when there's no dances to go to. So I just want to say a special big up to all the skankers out there, and I look forward to seeing those moves again. This week, my guest is Jamie Kibila Amlak. We have a really interesting talk about his experience from a very early age of reggae music, speaker boxes and music making. Jamie has an interesting perspective on things and is a great talker. And during the interview, we learn a lot about the Kibula Amlak journey that started out in Southend, one of the great places of reggae sound systems in the UK. And amongst many other things, we talk about the Brazilian singing trio, The Daughters of Aya, with whom we've both worked. So enough of me, let's get on with the interview. So, Jamie, Kibriela Amlak, welcome to the Life in Dub podcast. Give thanks, it's very nice to be here. Nice, nice. Well, I'm glad you could join me and looking forward to learning a bit about your sort of musical journey and what makes uh, Kibriela Amlak tick. Okay, yeah, I look forward to sharing it and uh, going on a little piece of that journey with you. Nice. Well, you probably know, I know you've heard a couple of the podcasts already, but what I do when I start out at the beginning of the interview is ask everyone the same question and the questions um, about a particular like track or song or bit of music that's had a really big influence on you, something that really kind of changed things for you from when you heard it, you know, when you look back, you think, yeah, that that's the thing that really kind of changed things for me. So I was wondering if you've got an example of a track like that you want to share with us. Yeah, it's kind of a track and an album as a whole and, and the whole climate around that album. I often reflect on it as, as being a fundamental kind of turning point in my life. Uh, in my taste in music, in, in in the trajectory that it put me on, and that is um, the Far Eyes, the Captain of My Ship album uh, with Max Romeo, the Shaka album, yeah. Uh, specifically the title track, 
but really, you know, most of the tracks on that album, I, I can't remember when it come out, like 92 or 94, but it was the whole sort of centenary vibe of the um, birth of His Majesty. He was born 1892, so 1992. You had a lot of these kind of centenary projects. So Zimmo was doing the centenary albums as well. And it was this yeah, I sort of those, yeah. real point where Rastafari became kind of super present in that 90s digital sound uh, from a kind of British-based reggae perspective as well. And that energy of, of that album, it, it really just captivated me in that comp the, the, the composition, the, the sonic landscape, and the way that, that the conviction, that, um, the kind of message and the feeling of Rastafari was fused in with all of those elements that were you know, quite contextually relevant for me, as opposed to a lot of the Jamaican uh, sort of 70s reggae that I'd been exposed to up until that point. Well, they sounded so fresh because there was a whole little series that Shaka put out at that time and I remember they sounded, because obviously they were recorded in Jamaica with a firehouse crew, um, but they had this like total like UK sound system vibe as well and they they still, for me, I'm just, I totally agree with you, like totally influential and quite unique records. Really. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I just hadn't, I didn't, it wasn't even a conscious thing. I just hadn't felt anything like that until that point. So well, just to sort of start off talking about your sort of musical journey, it's like, how did you, um, how did you discover reggae music? What was your kind of, what was your into to reggae music? Well, it was just always present in my house. And I was born in a town called Southend in Essex. Um which had enough proximity to East London to have a strong sound system, uh, kind of. It, it had a lot of sessions there, um, which a lot of people used to travel from London to attend. But then it kind and, of and developed... From and, and from Leicester. And from Leicester. From all over. I mean, for, for a predominantly white, right-wing seaside town, it saw some of the most amazing sessions that the UK ever saw in that time I think the the vibe was really always just about me from from time so have you got any like personal views as to why because Southend's one of those unique kind of roots reggae sound system towns but there are other towns on the south coast or whatever that are quite close to London and quite close to East London but Southend is like just embrace reggae music from from years and years so why do you think that is? Have you got any idea? I, I think it was really just coincidental. I think you had quite a lot of sounds in East London who needed venues, and seaside towns tend to have a lot of venues that sort of change hands quite often. Um, there's a lot of kind of backdoor dealings in those type of places, so they're quite easy to get, you know, without too much kind of rules and regulations. Um, quite good travel links. It's quite close to London on the train. There's, you know, a couple of good roads in and out. Uh, and then I think 
it just worked. The rest of it is sort of in the hands of the Almighty, really, that, that it took root there. But I think, interestingly, is that you have Southall, west of London, which has a very similar vibe. It doesn't have the right-wing component. It's not quite as paradoxical, but much more concentrated Indian community, uh, about the same sort of proximity from London, and another very, very, very strong sound system and reggae community. Yeah, it's true. I mean, we were talking to Indica Dubs in the last episode, last interview I did for the podcast and kind of got a lot of perspective on, on Southall. But even up here in Leicester, it's kind of, it, it's, it's reggae and sound system is something that really took root like from, from a long, long time. So, so talking about yourself in, in, in Southend, um, I mean, and you say reggae was around, it's like, you know, did you did you used to go to the sessions and stuff? I mean, and, or or did you just no? I used it, to like, go to the that? sessions, um, and I also discovered a record shop almost by chance in a little kind of market close to my house, uh, and it all it, it it was just like a kind of like a critical kind of mass of different influencing factors. Like I'd kind of already fallen in love with sound system, um, I'd already fallen in love with the music. And then, you know, you're a little boy really just walking through the market and you hear some bass and you gravitate towards it and then there's some records in there and, you know, what you've only listened to on cassette tapes with no real sort of actual relationship to each individual song in that way. You now see the whole walls of this shop adorned with individual songs and, you know, I, I, I could scrape two pounds together and and bought my first seven inch and it, it it really just unfolded from there and within you know a couple of months of that happening i inherited um a sound system style speaker box um we were close enough again to be picking up like uh, manasa joey j on 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 kiss and it just grew and grew and grew and grew, really, from that. Well, those, like, specialist record shops where it's, they're like temples for the music and it's kind of, you know, back in the day, for me, it would be like, everything I want to listen to is here in this shop. Yeah, and everything that you never knew you wanted to listen to <laughs> was there in the shop waiting for you to discover it, which is, you know, like any temple, you go there for knowledge of self in, in any sort of spiritual uh, tradition and the record shop is the same you go in there and there's all these chapters of you know potential knowledge of self just hanging on the walls and, and you take one down and you listen to it and that forms the soundtrack for that part of your life and you know maybe it, 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 ch it changes you as a person because it moves you in a particular way or there's a lyrical content to it that opens your mind to certain things or comforts you from certain things that you thought you were going through alone or uh yeah, it's powerful uh, stuff it's powerful stuff that's, you know, that's, that's, why, that's why we're here that's why we're here really really what, what about the sessions in south end i mean do you have any recollections of of the dances and sessions you used to go to I'll be really kind of brutally honest. And there, there was some great sessions. Um, but I also was a youth that was going to carnival from, from very early as well. Um, so it came to a certain point in Southend where 
as 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 good as the sessions were they just i didn't feel like there was a, a enough of what i was searching for in those sessions so i really spent much more time traveling to go to sessions and used to go to like uh the sessions blacker mix used to keep in the bedford Cabana club um used to go to a lot of shaka in the Cabana club yeah yeah used to take all manner of strange trains sleep in phone boxes just to to be able to well, attend bedford is not not an easy place to get to and it's like but I, we we used to go to those dances and you had the kind of because it's an old like Caribbean social club and you had the food kind of thing in the middle and the little room at the back where the sounds would play but it's like great great place to hear sound system really i i i could say definitely say some of my most memorable sessions have been in in that little place and i i really give thanks that you know the time that i came into the music was the end of that kind of golden era that people romanticize about so I, I give thanks, although to be, you know, relatively young, although that, that statement's wearing a bit thin nowadays, <laughs> for one of the relatively younger heads in the scene, I'm really grateful that I got to be part of that tail end of that, you know, kind of 90s heyday of sound systems. Yeah, I mean, it was like amazing times for, for sound systems to be playing, definitely. Definitely, and and it's it, like you were saying, it's like a, a a mission to get to these places as well, kind of underground places that are, you know, not greatly linked with public transport, but it's like you know, <laughs> nothing will stop us going. Absolutely, and you know, this is all before Google Maps and smartphones, so you know, little scraps of paper with directions jotted down on them, and very little local knowledge and. Yeah, it was so part of the whole experience. And what, what kind of sounds were you, were you listening to back then? Who, who were you going to check? Everyone, really. Um, I, th I think most sounds, I did see play at Club Cabana. It was ABBA or Channel One, Word, Sound and Power, Observer, uh Fair share unity was a sound yeah, that you don't Julian, see too yeah. much nowadays that I like to see playing down there. Yeah. Um, Fat Man. Uh, so there were some wonderful Shaka sessions held in that place. And I've, I've really, for me, I've like, I keep a very broad musical taste outside of reggae music. And sound system for me is the same. I like to check out as much as what is going on as possible. I like to especially see sounds that also play a diverse range of music. There were some great Jayuf sessions in, in, or many great Jayuf sessions over the years. Um, so it's like, it's always like a different feeling. Like uh, I've never been like a devout, like this is my sound, this is the sound that I follow. Uh, I love the whole spectrum of music. Really. Yeah, for sure. And I think, like, you know, may maybe these days, like, there's more pressure to kind of get everyone dancing with a kind of stepper or whatever. And, you know, in those days, there was maybe a bit more of a, well, this is my recollection, but a bit more of a kind of create the vibe musically and whatever, like, without having to just kind of just lash out stepper after stepper. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I'm 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 a hardcore stepper head. I love steppers to the max, but I I do believe for me, like as my personal taste, there is a a particular journey that I like to go on and I've been part of many sessions where I've been taken on that journey and I've also played many sessions where I have taken people on that journey of steppers being a destination in 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 the selection so that there's a lot of groundwork that should be laid it's a, it's a very powerful music form and when we're gathering up on a Friday night or a Saturday night and people have had all sorts of stress and pressure at work and so forth, you can't just put people into that kind of trance-like, cathartic kind of tribal warrior mode when they were, they were, they were stressed out 10 minutes ago because of the, the... So you have to really set a foundation, I feel, um, and play a whole range of the music. And it doesn't have to be linear, you know, just gradually increasing in tempo and, 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 and temperament of the music. But make every, like, play something to appeal to everyone and bring everyone in and bring that sense of kind of cohesion and unity together. And then once we're all kind of starting to function in one accord, because one record of one style is going to relax someone, another style will relax someone else, another style is going to relax something else, someone else. So once everyone's had that relaxation now, then we can start to go into those energies. And that's where I see, like, really you have a, a strong difference between catharsism and hedonism. Mm -hmm. And they get confused very easily. And I didn't used to see that confusion so often, but you do tend to see it a little bit more now. And I don't think people come to reggae music for hedonism. I don't think people gravitate towards the sound system kind of vibration for hedonism. There's so, like, really and truly, like, there's much better places to engage in that type of behaviour. Yeah, definitely. No, it... and, and I really say that without judgement. That's it. No, it just doesn't. Yeah, that that kind of thing doesn't fit all the way with reggae music for sure, for sure. But with with your own sort of journey, it's like when did you? And again, it's you know, it's something I ask every guest who I interview is kind of when did you start sort of getting involved yourself? Obviously, you go go into sessions, listening to the music, and very much drawn into it. But when when did you start kind of you know getting involved and wanting to kind of get deeper into it i mean what, what what kind of things were happening there like i said really from i bought that first seven inch and at the same time inherited this sort of giant double 15 inch sound system cabinet and lugged that up the stairs into my bedroom started listening to to the music in a different way now and also round about that same moment in time my uncle, who was a, a producer, took me into the studio and showed me the concept of, of using the mixing desk as an instrument and, and spread out a multi-track over the desk for me. Um, showed me which, which, uh, which were the auxiliary sends and, you know, this one does an echo, this one does a reverb. I blew me away. I'm, I'm sort of like nine years old at this point. So 
And I, 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 I'd never, never been a kid that was interested in toys. I really had my, my fascination was in it was in actual like grown up things, you know. Um, so as sort of like sort of, such a young mind now, like I had a speaker box that I could get inside. I had speakers that were bigger than my head that I used to unscrew out of this box and look at them and lift them up and look at the magnet and look at the coil and watch the way it moved and put it back in the box and see the way that that movement of the current changed when it went back into the box. I had this music on the turntable that was speaking to me from a kind of spiritual perspective as well and producing tones that were like resonating things in my body. And then I got shown how a mixing desk could be used to influence all of these factors. And I was that was it from there. I never questioned what I wanted to do with my life from that moment but then I had this kind of frustrating phase from being like nine ten years old not being able to get my hands on what I needed to do it this is before music could be made entirely in a computer so that was never yeah, going to happen for sure, for sure the access to it was much much harder back then and like you say that frustration is yeah kind of, yeah 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 you know it's it's not a nice thing to go through but I think it can make you determined because it's something you have to kind of get through to kind of you've got to break through that to, to get through to the next honestly you know when i say that reggae music and rastafari saved my life like uh, i mean it because that kept me away from so many things that could have changed the trajectory of my life in to to, to be very different to what it is today and that sort of spark that had been ignited in me um combined with this kind of moral compass that the the lyrical content of the music was instilling in me just made that made me focused you know to 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 do what i needed to do to get some money to start to buy little pieces of equipment and start to wire them together and start to think about how this could influence this and how this one could be used um and then, you know, you know, they, they have the saying that, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And I was also blessed that by the time I cobbled together a little studio and amassed an, enough kind of music and, and experience to start, like, thinking about building a sound, I always had, like, a little sound that we could kind of cut around in shopping trolleys and string it up in people's yards when their parents were away or whatever. So would you say you were doing the, the two things, like, together, or did, did one of them lead? I mean, were you, were, you getting, were you more into the making music and mixing to start with or more into the sound system and the boxes, or did, did they really happen at the same time together? I mean, no, what, really, what like, if, if they happened at the same time together. There was definitely periods where one might have got more focus for a year and then another one got more focus for a year. But one never progressed far without the other one pull, getting pulling it along, you know. And what about making music? I mean, how, how did you learn to make music? Because the music you make is very musical, definitely. It's kind of... How, you know, how, how did you get into making music? Because, you know, a lot of people can't do it. Yeah, I, and that's where I, I sort of say that, you know, when, when the student was ready, the teacher came and there was a, a man that many people know as Red Eye. The, the builder of the sirens. The builder of the sirens, one half of the uh, Mr. Dubs duo. Built Shaka's boxes, yeah. A absolutely, and many, many others. 
Um, also a very good musician, bass, guitar, keys, drums, a uh, good producer. Um, and he just took me under his wing and, and really showed me how to take all of what was up until that point sort of relatively uh, self-taught knowledge and formalised it. And we used to also play out together quite a lot sort of like a very friendly kind of sound clash kind of vibes. Uh, like I would have the left turntable, he would have the right turntable and we'd just play one for one all night long. Um, nice, yeah. But it was like, you know, he was an elder to me. So it was like, it was like this sort of teacher student thing of like, can you keep up? Can you, can you continuously keep drawing for good records? Like, can you counteract it? Can can you change the the mood in a graceful way and still keep people dancing? And it, like that that scored me a lot. And then we would meet up and reason on a spiritual perspective and reason about Rastafari. And then he would come to my yard and break down clacks of I think the first rhythm he taught me to build to make was Satamasagana. So very like I had to learn a few, few tricky chord changes in there as well. yeah and the way the bass kind of uh is up and down and uh so I had to learn to play the horns and that taught me a lot about harmony then learn the chord changes then the bass then how the drums really worked and how to program that all in and then we moved on to promised land then we moved on to rise and shine and just went through like that. Yeah, when, you, when you take apart those classic foundation rhythms and you, you attempt to rebuild them yourself, then you, you kind of get a look at the kind of building blocks of reggae and it's like, I remember them being very eye-opening sort of times for me when I was doing that kind of stuff when I, when I was young. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I think, you know, I, I recommend that to, to anyone who's ever asked me, like, how do I get into it? And it's like in the absence of having a teacher, study the greats and unpick them and try to learn to distinguish between the instruments and learn about the subtleties and the nuances of what is in each instrument is doing and how that all kind of amalgamates into something which is, you know, much greater than, than the sum of its parts. So do you have any of the old, old recordings of like the stuff you were doing when you were really young? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and how how does it now listening back to those? Sometimes, like it can be kind of shocking, and and sometimes it can be quite insightful to be like, oh right, there's something that maybe you know people might say is a signature of mine that was present before I even necessarily had any real talent, and 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 I've always been fascinated by by the you know people's signature sound. Or, or, or signature mm -hmm. sort of ways they compose or something because they, they, they're often so deeply unconscious that that's where you find the real beauty in the producer or composer or musician or artist. Like what are the things that have been your habits since maybe you didn't even have words to describe them or, or something like that? And how did that translate now into a musical context yeah, it's a nice way of putting it because it is you know for me it's like the holy grail of producers is to have like this is you know we all want to do diverse stuff and kind of um not be known for churning out the same kind of thing but but to have some kind of identity that's like 
you know, that's 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 really important, I think. And it's, it's a nice way of putting it, definitely. This like unconscious stuff that we're doing, you know, we're just making music and don't even know how we're managing to have that kind of signature. Yeah, especially if you are making, like, specialising a lot in one genre and you also had a kind of diverse musical taste. There's a couple of albums that I, I, I played them like recently in the last couple of years, just that, that were important albums to me as I was growing up. And one was, um, I can't remember the name of the album, but you, do you remember Finley Quay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had a bit of an association with Twinkle Brothers, didn't he? Because he actually did a vocal for them as well. Yeah. But, but he was like a sort of pop phenomenon in the 90s for a while. Exactly. And so, you know, as, as a kind of 90s, you, that album was inescapable and I loved it. But then I just forgot all about it. And the same with um, Erica Badu's seminal album in that period of time. And I listened to both of them. And in, even inside them, I was like, oh, right, okay, I was actually quite influenced by some of these things in, 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 in these ones as well. I just never realised it because I never went on and specialised in those genres. Yeah, you don't necessarily think like some kind of bit of musicality or just some kind of vibe from music that's completely out of reggae can kind of appear into something that's so, you know, if you're making roots reggae, it's definitely kind of, um, it's it's a sort of, distinct genre but i mean that's obviously how you know jackie matu and the studio one you know all those kind of foundation rhythms they were listening to jazz and country and western and all kinds of stuff and bringing that kind of vibe into the studio and coming up with reggae absolutely and uh, that i think is you know it's very important in any genre that the people involved in the genre also have some diversity otherwise you know if you have a genre which only listens to its own genre and only works within its own genre it can start to become quite clinical after a while because it's you know the the gene pool of the music is not being kind of stirred up in a way that that keeps it diverse yeah for sure i can't agree more with that it's really important to, to feed new kind of things into it but, you know, it's totally possible to keep things, as far as I'm concerned, as like roots reggae. Um, but to, to have all these different influences coming in, like, definitely. So so when it comes to, like, your, you know, writing and making music, I mean, when, when did you first, like, put a track out or, or, or get something cut to dub that maybe someone else was playing and it's kind of, so it's out of your kind of, you know, kind of, sort of circle and in, in, into the wider world. When, when, when did that kind of stuff start? It happening? started quite a bit later than, than the sort of production side of things. It took me a long time to really... I, it kind of... It took me a long time to get the courage, but there was also a long time where I was really just enjoying the process. And I think because I always had a sound as well, there was a degree of the process where um, I was always getting to hear the music played out anyway. So you were playing out like from quite an early age and with, with some kind of sound or whatever then. That was like, that, that was going on as well. Then. Yeah, I really, from, like I said, from I inherited that first box, there was always some sort of desire to carry it through the streets and string it up wherever possible. Uh, whether that was in someone's garden or someone's yard or sometimes we used to hire these like little places where bands would rehearse and just go and string up some, everyone would 
you know, bring together whatever random boxes they could find and get some amps and string them up and we would just sit in there and listen to music, you know, without disturbance. Um, so even in the studio time now, like, I still was sort of having that experience of them played out. And then at a certain point it was like, no, now it's really, you know, mostly through the encouragement of other people saying you should try and give these to other sounds and things. And so I think it was like 2004 when I got the courage to go and cut my first dub. And I'm not going to say the name of the sound that I cut it for. Um, because after being very excited, sitting on the tube uh, on my way to the place where I believed I could leave the dub for this particular sound, holding it in my hands, this sort of like glowing object of admiration that I'd finally reached to the stage of doing. (laughs) I remember people on the tube just looking at, what is this guy doing? Why does he keep smelling this black metal disc that he keeps taking out of his bag? And it's like the smell of a freshly cut dub is so sweet. And by chance, I I think I, I got given the number for the sound. Um, which I wasn't expecting to happen. So then I, I, I went and bought some credit and topped up my pay-as-you-go uh, mobile phone to try and call them. And uh, I, I was so nervous. My voice was quivering. <laughs> and when I said, yeah, yeah, I've got this dub for you and, 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 and this voice that I'd only ever heard through the sound system spoke back to me and said, I don't see what you could possibly have for me Everything I have, everything I need, I already have. That's, yeah, that's a a great way of putting out the fire, isn't it? (laughs) And until that point, I hadn't, I didn't have a name for the, for the rhythm. I I was waiting for one to come to me, but I had my marker with me and I went and walked back to the, to the tube station, sat down on the tube. I took my marker out and I scribed the stone that the builder refused on, onto the dub and went home. And, um, that made me really determined to start releasing. That's it, because those that that those disappointment things, it's like they're horrible. No one wants to go through that stuff. But if you can find a way of getting through those, then it'll get you up to the next stage. Ah, uh, I, I, it's it's a, it's like a bit of sweet. You never want to say that people have to go through it, but I, I don't know what's out there for you if you don't. Like if you haven't had your dreams crushed over and Absolutely. over again. <laughs> How do you really know it's for you, you know? Because it, it can't just come easily, that kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, that, that determination. And, you know, and that continues to the present day. It's like realising you're going to need that. It's like you, without that, you're not going to have any kind of career in, in the world of music. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, these things spiral right out into life itself. Like if, if you want to follow your passion, you, you have to expect you're going to be tested. And if you want to do something that goes against the status quo, like you can't expect it to be an easy ride. And no one that 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 we look up to or are inspired by got there, uh, you know, with it. It didn't just land on their laps. It, people people have sacrificed mm-hmm. so much, and, and I see so many of us that I, you know, we meet up on the road when we were blessed enough to still be travelling, and and 
just in casual reasonings where people aren't even really disclosing, you know, like their private business, you, you, you just get the sense that a lot of sacrifice has gone into this, especially in this genre. Um, a lot of sacrifice has gone into to, to the richness yeah, for sure. that has for come sure. from that, it. That, that struggle is like, that's, you know, that's, that's what gives it a vibrancy, definitely. But, but, you know, whilst talking about kind of struggle and, and, and the, the sort of the difficulties of it, it's like, you know, obviously you're producing music and you're into this sound thing. And it's like, I'm quite interested in the sound thing because it's like, it's something that, that me and Richie Roots looked at years ago. And it's like, yeah, yeah, we, we, we should build a sound. But I just kind of realised that it's like my thing is the studio, definitely. That, that's what I'm interested in. And I know from what... I, from my dealings with many, many, many people with sound system, is this love of lifting the boxes and moving the sound and plugging it all in and being there first and staying up all night and right to the end. It's kind of you have to have that total kind of warrior spirit to to run a sound system. And it's like, is that something that you that you into? Is that 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 side of it? A hundred percent, you know. And and, and sound was so integral in, in my journey and that that was every step of the way from building the boxes and you know trying to as much of the electronic engineering side of stuff as I could comprehend I would be trying to to do myself um loading up the truck unloading it stringing up the sound you have to love all that side of it don't you yeah, 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 yeah. Otherwise, you know, so much of the stuff that you might not love happens before you actually get to play. So <laughs> you, could, you have to be ready to like, if you can't love the, the sort of first five, six hours of, of what happens before the session, you're going to be miserable by the time it starts. But it, again, it, it was like, there was a, there, for me, there's a lot of factors in still loving mm-hmm. it. And, and when things get a bit clinical, I saw that some of the ways of loving it were, were a little tougher. Um, and this, there was a need for efficiency um, that, that also made loving it a little bit tougher. Um, there, you know, what I really love about Sound System is this sort of DIY kind of vibe and this by any means necessary kind of vibe. And not, you know, not having it very uh, uh, clinical and about efficiency. So this is the box that we're going to use because we're only allowed X amount of boxes in the venue and we definitely want to tear the place down. So we're going to go with this design. Um, I, I really love the sort of like, you know, we've got what we've got. We're going to bun- bundle it in the back of a van the driving legislations were much easier at a certain point in time. So the whole posse can jump in the back of the van as well. And you've got this kind of family vibe and is like laughing and joking. Um, you're not super paranoid about getting stopped by the police because you haven't got a vehicle to carry that many people or you're overweight and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, the venue is a community centre or, or some sort of like more uh, underground kind of place. 
So you haven't got like stressed out door staff and stressed out club owners kind of fretting about what's going on and so forth. And that side of sound system was what captivated me. And like, I really like still hang on to the opportunities where that still exists. Yeah, it's like creating your own and, kind of thing in an empty space rather than trying to sort of deal with, say, deal with regulations and whatever and going into like a standard music venue. Absolutely. But then I also have this sort of totally paradoxical side of me from doing the sort of live dub mixing. And I love being in a really high-end music venue with great monitoring and everything that I need and a table at the perfect height and there's lights where I need them. Uh, all of the things on my tech rider have been provided for me. I can hear myself crystal clear so I can really get into the vibe of mixing and stuff as well. Um, it's qu quite quite a different vibe to like lashing together your boxes in the community <laughs> centre, isn't it? <laughs> it's a total paradox. It's a total and utter paradox. But I also believe there's a really nice kind of middle ground between the two. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. So, so with the, like the sound system and stuff, it's like obviously you know seeing um, your sound play a lot of big sounds and be you know a, a big active sound sort of a few years ago and like what what, what was it like kind of you know when, when the sound had been built up to kind of to play in on a level with maybe the sounds that you used to go and follow when when you were a you so what 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 was that like playing alongside those sort of bigger sounds. Totally surreal, completely and utterly surreal to have gone in what felt like a very short space of time from admiring these sounds, uh, you know, having them on like untouchable pedestals in the University of Dub to finding myself in the University of Dub playing alongside them. Yeah, that's an achievement. That's a proper achievement. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, it really was mind-blowing for me. Like I, I'll be completely honest, it really blew me away. And um, I'm not saying that I didn't work exceptionally hard. Like I really worked, put my shoulder to the wheel to 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 do everything I could to make it happen. But. So much, you know, there's only so much you can achieve by sheer will alone. After that, there's sort of some divine grace that, that just opens up doors for you that your, you know, your, your, your willpower alone couldn't open up. It was like exciting, daunting. I felt honored while simultaneously feeling like completely unprepared. Um, and 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 then you know quite quickly it kind of almost became the norm. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? It's those you only get one time where it's the first time you've played alongside or with a big sound. It's kind of after that, it's kind of you're there playing with all these people, and it's kind of that's it. Like you say, it becomes the norm. Yeah, and I think it's also you know like there's a degree of. If your ambition is like, I must share the bill with these artists or I must reach the caliber of, of I must reach the, 
I must become the calibre of artists that can play in these venues and so forth. You're kind of going to be perpetually dissatisfied. And as much as there was so much honour in, in, in the experiences of getting to play alongside all of the sounds that inspired me, there was also every much uh, as, of a chance that I would um, enjoy myself equally as much or even more in, in, in a very low-key kind of underground show in Geneva with 100 people or something. No, for sure. A lot, a lot of people ask me about kind of, oh, is it, is it, tell me the best session you ever played and you sort of expect you to kind of say, well, this one had the most people, so it was like whatever. But but definitely, the, the you know, it's the, it's the luck of the vibe or that night and it could be like, you know, 30 people in some tiny little place or or it could be the the, the mega stage at the big festival. It's kind of, you know, they're... they're, they're they're all, yeah, they're all, you know, when they go well, they're all amazing in their own yeah, way. absolutely. I think especially if you come from those, like, smaller, you know, events where you're used to, like, little, you know, whether it's little places in Southend or, like, for me, little places in Leicester where it's kind of, you know, the, the, the sort of the diehard kind of loyal fans of the music are there and, you know, it's, there's not many other people. It's kind of come from that kind of background then. It's still kind of you know I, I enjoy playing sessions where it's just kind of yeah those those sort of loyal fans of it yeah definitely it's always it's 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 nice to expose people to the music that have never heard it and it's also nice to to play sometimes where you're just playing to people that really know the music and they know when 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 it's a hit track or, or you know they know when when that the style but especially you know like. Sometimes I've played places and people seem really like perplexed by the space between the songs. You know, you have two drunkards at the back of the room, put some music on. <laughs> no, no, no. We we like to leave the music to breathe a little bit, you know. And so, but it's, it's, it's yeah. Sometimes sometimes it's 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 nice to just know that everyone knows the coup. And you can just get on and you don't feel like you're trying to kind of expose people to something new. Well, one thing I'm quite interested in in talking about with you is is like, you know, obviously you've travelled the world with your music now. Um, and we both worked with, with the same artist in that we both worked with Daughters of Aya from um, Brazil. And I met them through you because you, you'd, you'd done some music with them and brought them to Europe for a tour and whatever. So... Um, I was wondering um, what what that kind of project was like for you. You know, as a starting off in South End, and the next thing, you know, a few years later, you're in Brazil making records with with, with Brazilian artists, and it's kind of that. That's quite a quite a crazy journey, really. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Like it's the same the same thing with the sound system thing. You know, when when you get a, a email confirmation and you see these mad places in it and like wow i can't believe my music managed to get me all the way there that's crazy and sao paulo was definitely one of those vibes and i i i met i met the the three girls regiani carolyn mari uh the first time i was there and it was it just completely happened by chance um that we'd done a little recording together in this kind of makeshift studio on the festival site. 
Um, but then we all hit off this amazing vibe and I invited them to perform with me at the show at the festival and, and then we made the rest of my sort of mini tour of Sao Paulo. We, we made all the shows together after that. And um, like I said, I, 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 I've always had a very eclectic taste in music. So for me, it was like, it was a joy to be recording in Portuguese, um, especially the Brazilian Portuguese. I just really love the way it, it kind of flows. And um, there's a lot of challenges, of course, that come with it in terms of just even communicating in the studio and, and making, figuring things out. And um, it, was, it was something that, that just excited me from the moment that I had the opportunity to. And, and also what I saw in the session that we we done together is, is it was a real blessing that Carol uh, is fluent in English as well because she was translating a lot for me in the session. And what I saw was a, you know, a very hungry audience um, that were absorbing this kind of knowledge of their own story in terms of the sort of their part of the story in the transatlantic slave trade um, and how this music could speak to them in terms of sort of finding a self-identity and, and, and finding worth and value in a society that really wanted to strip them from that that had, would be otherwise inaccessible to them because they didn't under, readily understand the lyrics in the music. Mm -hmm. For me, it felt like something that I wanted to do and something that had to be done. Um, but there, yeah, there was this kind of like big complexity of like, then what happens with the music? Like, you know, we know that the, the, the predominant sort of record buying public is in Europe. Uh, records in other languages don't really always tend to sell the same. Um, it could be difficult to get shows and, and stuff like that. Um, and so what happened was we, we made this video in, in, in the favela, like on a rooftop, where we done one of the, performed this track that we'd written together live, and I, I'd done the live mix. And then I subtitled it and uploaded it to YouTube. And... It was really just like, it, it It went down so well. People were so kind of captivated by by the power of the Three Sisters. Yeah, they're definitely like, they've got a vibe for sure. Oof. Yeah, and literally within, you know, a, a day or so of it going up online, um, I got a phone call um, with an invitation to Rotterdam for the three of them. So I, I ended up um, flying back out to Brazil um, a couple of months later and we, we put together a whole show and, you know, wrote some tracks. And that, that's not easy. It's not like getting on the bus in Southend, is it? You know, <laughs> all the way across the Atlantic to Brazil. Honestly, I often say to people, like, because, you know, I'm a nomad. I'm, I'm, I get about a lot. I've lived a lot of different places and I've traveled a lot as well. And sound system was something that accustomed to me from a very young age, really, especially because I was doing sound before any of us had a car. So we used to carry it through the streets. I, I'm, I'm, I'm very comfortable with carry, with, with 
suitcases and bags. And then whether that is like, you know, taking five stops on the underground to, to get just down to the next borough, or whether it's driving all the way up, you know, the M4 to get to Bristol, or whether it's getting on a plane and, and getting off the other side, the stress really is just in packing the bags and making the move. How long it takes after that is inconsequential. Like, if anything, I, like, I prefer a long haul flight because I can watch a movie, kick back, eat some food, shut my eyes. It's, it's a vibe. So Yeah, for, for, for real, for real. And it's like if you want to take your music out there, you, you've got to get out there. I, I agree. I mean, I had the same thing when I was young. It's just kind of, from, yeah, lugging stuff down the street by hand to then, you know, flying all over the place. It's like you want to take it out, then you've you got to get out and about. And, you know, and some people don't enjoy travelling and, you know, they, even like established artists who, who love to play for people don't enjoy travelling because travelling can be a stress. But if you enjoy the travelling, and I certainly do, it's like that's a kind of, extra kind of um like blessing with being involved in the music mm, for sure for sure and he said in 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 the same way for me it's sort of like it's not so much about the like perception of a of, of a of a location even though there's a romanticism that plays into it but it's just about the richness of whatever you find and you can find that anywhere and in sao paulo it happened to be the daughters of aya it was so rich that that uh it we just had to do something together and, and and to be out there for that period of time to create the show and then i sort of flew back and we didn't see each other from i, I sort of left sao paulo and the show was could kind of good to go but we hadn't really managed to nail it yet in any of the rehearsals we conceptually knew what everyone had to do and then the f- next time we were all together was on the in the dub corner in front of thousands of people at Rotterdam. Quite, quite a <laughs> rehearsal, that one, isn't it? But it was a really like seminal moment. At Rotterdam, you've got a very diverse crowd, people literally from all over the world. So if you're bringing more of a world kind of project, then it's a great place to be doing that, I think. Definitely, definitely. And... Although I was actually surprised how well it was received everywhere, um, even in some of the more sort of diehard, like underground reggae circuits, it was received really well. And I think sometimes there's a perception that the that, that, that genre can be relatively narrow, but actually people are quite hungry for something a little bit more eclectic. And no, for sure. It doesn't always sell as fast. Um, and my music, like, it doesn't fly off the shelves, but it it, it, it kind of goes out in in a, in a very like steady trickle, which I, I, I've always kind of been moved with because some 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 of the music I put out is it is much slower than what uh, the the distributors might tell you people want, or the you know. The ones, there's this sort of like desire to be like, you have that that classic social media clip of your song being played as the last song and everyone going mad and the lights are on and everyone's jumping up and down. But there, there is more to, to reggae music than that, definitely. Absolutely. There's just not as much social media glory in having that song where people kind of really like 
went inwards for five minutes and had a deep kind of reflection on 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 their purpose or let go of a bag of stress they were holding on to or something that that's a much more, has a much more quiet kind of meaning and a quiet appreciation which doesn't translate well through social media at all yeah yeah it's true it's true it's like that that side of things has cha- changed things a lot definitely that kind of hype promotion thing is like it's a it's a kind of new chapter isn't it yeah, it definitely changed the landscape. And obviously, yeah, you've gone on to produce, you know, lots of records, worked with lots of artists, particularly, you know, you've worked with a lot of really great vocalists. And I was wondering what kind of stuff we, we can expect from you sort of going forward. I mean, what, what kind of things have you got in the pipeline? Mm, I think if, like, Corona has changed... For me, I, I, I think... And, and and I think I'm not alone. That Corona let me kind of breathe for a minute. Yeah, certainly given everyone time to take stock, isn't it? Yeah, because this absence of thinking about bookings, you know, it, like I say, with that kind of like social media hype, you kind of know what we have to do to be commercially viable for these promoters. Um, and in the absence of that, it's definitely let me just kind of express myself in ways where where I might not have always expressed myself. Um, so I think you can definitely expect to see a lot more diversity than than even ever before in what I'm been working on and what I'm going to put out. Um, it might not lend itself to a dig- uh, to a vinyl release. It might just have to be digital stuff, but um, yeah, it kind of freed me up to just sort of like, well, I, I should really just express all the different elements of 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 my inspiration as well. So it's always going to have a very strong reggae foundation. Anything I do, I don't think I could take that out if I wanted to. But yeah, there's a lot of different material that I'm working on at the moment that I'm going to start to put out over the coming months. Nice. Nice. Well, listen, we've been talking for quite a while now, so I just wanted to ask the question which I ask everybody at the end of the interview, um, which is my book of dub question. So I've got the book of dub. I'm writing everyone's name in it. I'm writing Jamie Kibbele Amlak. Um, I was wondering what you'd want kind of written next to your name, something to be associated with, like, with, with the work that you do. No, I think I would, you know, really like to be remembered as someone who was not afraid to do things differently. Nice. Is that something you want to expand on at all? Like I say, in terms of sort of having a uh, a bit more of a diverse output or um, choosing to, you know, touch subjects that otherwise might not have been touched or, you know, in work with different types of, musicians introduce different elements in into the music um that were a lot of things in the way that like when i approach sound system i i I do things quite differently uh i think a lot of my production techniques are quite different as well yeah it's nice to see like you're working with people like in in colombia and in india and kind of embracing these kind of different musicians and bringing them in to make some kind of like reggae collaboration. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd done an interview recently which touched upon some of my other creative work as a film director and um, graphic designer. 
uh, and as a musician and a music producer. And I was asked what ties together, what's the common thread between all of these different creative outlets. And, and the, the common thread for me is storytelling. And that's what I love to sort of put that into the musical context is I, I really want the story of the artist or the story of the musician to shine through. And that story is, is not even their story. It's the, the story that they've been chosen to express. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, in order for me to do that, I have to be always willing to do things differently because I don't want to inhibit anything that has chosen you know, an artist or a musician to express and then that same kind of creative spark has chosen me to be the one that that extracts it from them. Um, so I can't have any sort of rigid ideas about who I am and what I do and what I'm trying to do. My, my, my aim is just to allow it to, 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 to be whatever it wants to be, whatever the expression itself wants to be. And to really achieve that, I just have to try and get out of the way and, and, and be a clean vessel for it to pass through. Nice. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting hearing your sort of perspective on things and all the different kind of work you've been involved in and stuff. So thanks for taking part in the uh, Life in Dub podcast. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Steve. Thanks again for joining me and Jamie for the 21st episode of the Life in Dub podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to Life in Dub wherever you get your podcasts so you can make sure you always have the latest episode. And also, you can go back and listen to any of the previous episodes. They're all there, lifeindub.com, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever you want to listen to them. Again, if you like the podcast, do tell your friends and family about it, share it, and help spread these unique stories far and wide. All the info you'll need about the show is at the website lifeindub.com, and I'll see you all again in two weeks for the next Life in Dub podcast. <laughs>